Hi, Media Techies. That's what we've decided to call our listenership now. <laughs> this is part one of two episodes we are releasing on our Flagman staff. When we recorded this, as you'll hear, we didn't know whether a second season was on the cards. And now that we know that there will definitely be a second season, maybe shot in New Zealand. We're super excited and even more excited to share our thoughts on the first season with you all. We had so much to say that we ended up splitting the episode into two parts. In this first part, we'll talk about piracy as a performance. The genre of eccentricity. Queer bidding. And of course, we can never talk about queer pirates without talking about black sails. So we hope you enjoy this episode and the second part will be released very soon. Promise. Hi, Lily. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Anna. What's a pirate's least favorite vegetable? I don't know, Lily. What is the pirate's least favorite vegetable? Leeks. <laughs> yep. Wow. And it's sure. like plural leeks as well when it's like vegetable, so it doesn't kind of grammatically yeah. quite make sense. I <laughs> we just used up all the really good ones, the really good ones in the last episode. Yeah. So, you know, um I oh, had to make do. I, I I haven't checked my joke against your um, oh, you know. your jokes in your episode, so you might get a repeat. Who can say? Who can say go, go, go. it? Oh, wait, no, we're, we're, it's the last one, end, end joke. We're saving it, saving yeah. it to the end. So saving that's going to be something we can, that will just be like a bit of tension throughout the episode. <laughs> yeah. It's the final joke. It's going to be something we can slightly before. stressed, like, oh, God. <laughs> Hi, I'm Anna. I'm Lily. And I'm Lucy. And this is Liliana's pre-read Mediatique. The podcast where we analyse and discuss audience preconceptions of media from a queer feminist lens. Yeah. yeah. And this week of episode, we have a friend of the podcast, Lucy. She's back Yay! again. Yay! I'm back. Yay! Hey. <laughs> um, yeah. uh, we actually, she wasn't even, well, no, she was invited, but like, um, you what? like specifically... <laughs> <laughs> Wow. I knocked on the door and said, wow. <laughs> No, but I, what I was trying to say is that um, Lucy specifically requested to be on this episode, I believe. Like, you sent me a message that was like, if you're going to do Black Sail, not Black Sail, if you're going to do our flag, <laughs> wrong pirate Black- media. Oh, no. <laughs> How many times is that going to happen this episode? I don't know. Yeah. Um, but yeah, you said if you want, if you, if we were going to do an Our Flag Means Death episode, you would like to be on it. Um, and so. Yeah. And you texted me that and I was like, oh my God, I'm so honored that you didn't sort of do our yesterday episode and then thought like, okay, let's run far okay. away from this. Yeah, never again. <laughs> so yes, uh, as we kind of just mentioned, this episode, we are going to be looking at the 2022 HBO show, Our Flag Means Death, created by David Jenkins. Um, I just included the little summary here from IMDb because I thought it was funny. The year is 1717. Wealthy landowner Steed Bonnet has a midlife crisis and decides to blow up his cushy life to become a pirate. It does not go well, based on a true story. <laughs> <laughs> Which I'm like, so, debatable, it does not go well. I don't know, it goes, it's complicated, perhaps. It goes okay well. Okay yeah. well, yeah. some things go well, some things go less well. Um, yeah. Drama. And ensues. isn't that just life? <laughs> <laughs> Makes you think. 
um since we started uh, this podcast also because lily and i got obsessed with black sales um we will be talking about the show in comparison to black sales there was a star show that aired from 2014 till 2017 that was set in the golden age of piracy and act as a kind of prequel to the book treasure island um so we have real life pirates mm -hmm. in our flagman's death and also fake ones wait which are the fake we... ones do we wait no i'm not <laughs> no. i'm thinking about it i'm like no kojak <laughs> no. was real i think they're all real i think they're all based on i mean like okay, I based on historical characters and i think you're thinking of because it's like in black cells they have like a mixture of real life characters right. and right, right, right. um like fictional characters which is interesting to kind of see the parallels between how they portray them as well um but yeah kind of major spoilers for black sales um please go watch also for that. history <laughs> yeah also yeah, yeah. <laughs> So I did a, like a little bit of a summary. I'm going to leave out a lot that happens on the show because a lot of stuff happens on the show, but also because we're going to talk about this in detail, but I wanted to give a little bit of a summary for anyone who hasn't watched it. Um, so like Lily said, a wealthy landowner called Steed Bonnet, he has a ship built called the Revenge and hires a crew to sail the high seas, becoming the gentleman pirate. His crew wants to kill him because they don't respect him as a captain. Um, they manage to steal a plant, though, from some fishermen, but run into uh, trouble when they encounter a British Navy ship. Uh, the captain of that ship turns out to be an old school chum, which I wondered, was that a pun on fish? Because isn't that like chum? Or oh, something yeah, chum like is fish? like a thing. It's like the leftovers of fish or something. I, I'm not that sure. had not struck me at all, but sorry <laughs> i like it though that could that's a better joke than like you could have made a better joke out of that than the one that i gave at the beginning so um <laughs> badminton who is the old school chum enters the ship and when steed gets angry he stuns him with a whale paperweight out of metal um and badminton dies accidentally by falling on his orange sword <laughs> like dies accidentally <laughs> what's uh... <laughs> oh no <laughs> Um, Steed uses the death um, because Olu advises him, one of his crew members, to use the death to get him respect from the crew. And they keep two British soldiers as hostages and try to sell them, um, encountering Spanish Jackie, who is brilliantly played by Leslie Jones, who I love so much in the series, but just overall, she's so funny. Um, Spanish Jackie's husband was murdered by Jim, a member of Steed's crew, and the crew encounters Easy Hands and Fang and the character that Gus Khan plays, uh, who are members of Blackbeard's crew, who is an infamously vicious pirate from Bristol. And by refusing <laughs> to meet with him, not in this show though, no. <laughs> and by refusing to meet with him, they spark his interest. Uh, Steed is tricked into being captured and stabbed by a Spanish soldiers and get saved by Blackbeard who takes over Steed's ship. Uh, Steed and Ed, who is Blackbeard, bond and they become friends despite Ed's plan to kill Steed and frame him as Blackbeard so he can escape. Izzy, who is Blackbeard's second in command, realizes that Ed has gotten too close to Steed and sells him out to the British, but before they can execute Steed, Ed demands an act of grace, making Steed and Blackbeard soldiers of the British Empire for 10 years. Upon landing in Barbados, Ed confesses his love to Steed and kisses him, and they plan to escape together. Steed is kidnapped by the other badminton brother, who also accidentally dies. <laughs> <Whoops>. um, <laughs> 
This time he falls, like he shoots and falls on his own weapon. No, he falls yeah, on his own weapon and it goes off. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Steve yeah, confidence decides- runs in the family. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> also the reason why you should never give me a gun. Every time someone goes like, you need to have a gun. I'm like, like not to me it's personally. It's like running Jesus. with scissors. It's like, don't run. Yes. It's like, hold it down and like, yeah. don't run and don't be drunk whilst you're trying to chop things. I've never heard that as advice, yeah. but I feel like that is good advice. <laughs> never try and like, cut anything it's like if you if you have that thing that swords go in what's that a sheath scabbard oh i think that's like daggers maybe or it's like the fancy version of your fancy you call it a scabbard scabbard. i think it i think it probably said scabbard in narnia and that's stuck in my head (laughs) yeah (laughs) yeah but like that's the reason i'm so clumsy like i've generally fallen over standing somewhere you should not give me a weapon (laughs) Steed decides to go back to his wife and children to make things right, but they are doing better without him, making Steed realize that he found true love with Ed. He fakes his own death with the help of his wife, or now ex, well, not really. Ed, meanwhile, has returned to the revenge and Izzy pushes him to become Blackbeard again. Blackbeard feeds Izzy his own toe to convince him that he's serious and abandons half the crew on a desert island, which I thought was really funny because it looks like what you would draw if you draw like a cartoon of a desert island. Yeah. <laughs> full-on evil blackbeard again he throws lucius overboard and becomes a tyrant captain steed's daughter shares the petrified orange that steed brought home with him with her dad and steed sets out to join his found family coming upon half of his crew on the desert island and that's season one of our flagman's death So in this podcast, we talk about the concept of a pre-read text. Um, We use that to talk about the media that we analyze. Um, This concept was coined by Rowan Ellis, uh, and it describes when you haven't engaged with the source material of a story or piece of media, but you have a strong sense of what it is about through interacting with various adaptations of that original material. Um, So this kind of like cultural consciousness of this um, like original story is all characters or images or concepts are kind of created through these adaptations. Um, but they might have very little or even nothing to do with the original source material and instead just all be kind of from those adaptations. Um, and I think in this um, episode, we'll be exploring ideas and preconceptions within the show, as well as our own kind of preconceptions around sort of piracy and the show in relation to our watching of Black Sails. Um, so that's kind of like, that'll be our, our lens. So we're going to start off talking about ideas about piracy, which is something that we talked about in our Black Cells episode as well, um, which Lucy hasn't listened to, but that's fine. I don't mind. I, um, I mean, I, I think I did, but it was just many months ago. Okay, okay, fine. <laughs> okay, <laughs> save yourself. I'm a good save friend. Yourself. We'll have you back again. Uh, <laughs> um, but yeah, anyway, I think those themes of like ideas about piracy coming quite strongly here. Again, those sorts of things. So like stuff like kind of the hyper-masculine pirates, criminality and idea of the child-friendly pirate um, or sort of like you know those sort of tropes of piracy and we're talking both in terms of audience ideas about piracy but also kind of ideas about piracy within the show and like the different characters and their ideas about piracy 
if that makes sense. Yeah, which also links to pre-read text because exactly. our understanding of piracy is very defined by children's costumes. And given that this is like an actual crime, it's kind of weird how it gets whitewashed in order to be sold within children's narratives and things like that. And how it's sort of known through, that's why it's pre-read text known through stories like Treasure Island, even if you've never read the book. So I think we start out in the show with this idea of like, piracy is already faded like this kind of golden era of piracy is kind of gone in the second episode when they go to the republic of pirates and it's immediately like oh it's you know it's quite gentrified now it's no longer this kind of like cool and authentic space and i think that's also interesting because it's like reflected in the characters as well it's like all the like the main characters like seed and blackbeard are like these sort of middle-aged people they've gone past their kind of golden era and it's especially with blackbeard as this image of like amazing piracy this image is already always already passed and we kind of I mean we do see that in the show but we never see this thing that everyone's sort of harking back to all the time oh that's true that's even like pre-read text in the show yeah somehow. like everyone knows who Blackbeard is even though they've necessarily like never even encountered him they know the stories which again comes up a lot in Black Sails comes up a lot in this show about how pirates sorry I'm already jumping the gun here no 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 it's great go for it go for it yeah. like it's already about how the stories make the pirate rather than the facts mm. and yeah and as we encounter Blackbeard on the show he's already bored yes. he's already over it it's not just it's not like he's sad because he's older it's more that he's bored with everything that's already sort of been done at this point yeah, because I, I was interested, yeah, in the idea of the, like, um, gentrified, the idea that the Republic of the Pirates had kind of yeah. become gentrified almost, and they were like, oh, it's become really touristy. And that is something that actually really reminded me of Black Sails when Teach arrives in NASA, and he's like, this used to be, like, really rough and tumble, and now you've all gone soft, and you're here with your nice little pubs that you've opened, and you're, like, having a nice time. And so he's kind of like, this has become gentrified and touristy when he goes to that space. And then you do, because that idea of gentrification does also have roots and ideas of colonialism, of like it was once a free space, but mm. this is kind of a sort of encroaching on this free space from, I don't know, forces that are attempting to like civilise it with scare quotes. That also the thing that's being lost definitely has kind of this link to like masculinity and like if it used to be rough and tumble and that's the kind of true space so it was all yeah. complicated yeah it is because it is that kind of like especially when like um calico jack's introduced later on in the series and you get these kind of flashbacks to his and blackbeard's like youth and then you kind of see that's playing out as like older characters and it's sort of this very abusive and toxically masculine piracy. I agree with you, basically, is what I'm trying to say. And I also like the fact that when they get to the Republic of Pirates, someone's like, oh, is that a gift shop? And then it's sort of, <laughs> and then it's like when they're talking about like the gift shop, when that scene with Blackbeard's delicacies and delights oh, and yeah. fishing equipment. And then it's sort of like, <laughs> and it's just like, oh, gift shop. But it's like, <laughs> but it's the idea of like mellowing. Describes, oh, I didn't even pick yeah. up on that. That's so sweet. <laughs> Also, you've got Steed uh, posing in front of, was it a skeleton or something? Oh, and yeah, she's yeah. like, you need to sketch me in front of this. <laughs> this looks so authentic. This idea of using the aesthetic and not having to deal with the concept of what 
that reality mm. really looks like because when yeah. steed walks in and wants lucius to announce him to the pub and everything to steed this is a performance i am the gentleman pirate and just everyone there just has just no chill for any of this shit it's also again oh isn't this so authentic isn't this so cute mm. based on the aesthetic but it's like there's a reason why this looks like this and it's because it's technically wait well, has it been gentrified at this point sort of have the British overrun this with civilization or have they not or has it started and that's why Roach yeah. I think is the one who comments no I think Frenchie is the one so it's like it's really gentrified now yeah I think and there's like an irony to it as well because it's like when they first step off the boat it's like people just like vomiting blood into a gutter and it's like oh <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> it's gone really upmarket. <laughs> someone steps up and puts their bloody hands on Lucius and Steed gets annoyed with you couldn't have sidestepped and you're like no dude this is the authentic bit but yeah. you don't want to deal with the authentic bit. You don't want it on your nice white clothes. And then, so we have the idea of piracy, which we're going to get into a bit more in a little bit. Um, and then we also have the crew's idea of piracy and the swashbuckling lifestyle. <laughs> Anna, did you want to say a bit? about swashbuckling when i looked up the genre of this television show one of them was like swashbuckling i mean it's technically like a literature uh genre oh right yeah i was thinking it was interesting in terms of masculinity mm. because swashbuckling to me is so camp right like yeah. it's this weird thing of everyone's pretending like someone you know flying from a vine and playing around with a sword it's so performative in a weird way but it's meant to be really masculine yeah. and so i think that's also maybe by like pirate shows went out of fashion for a while because this is meant to be the most masculine thing ever and then it's like just like <laughs> it's actually like an aerobics thing almost like it's, yeah it's, it's um, more... for those of people well everyone listening Anna just did a nice look and like flourish like a sword flourish uh. <laughs> I feel like that's maybe one of the reasons why Pirates of the Caribbean, at least the first movie, worked because they sort of acknowledged that the idea of someone just walking around and like swinging a sword is quite, it is over the top. It is very theatrical. So you have to either lead into this camp and queer. We're going to talk a bit more about theatricality in a second. Yeah. Um, But I've put down written oral histories here. Lucy, do you want to kick us off with a bit of written and oral history? Yes. So throughout the show there is this kind of again this is something that really resonates with black sales which is obsessed with both like written and oral histories there's that repeated description of when they're talking about the Spanish treasure and it's like let me tell you a story about this person and then you kind of get a very same similar thing in art flag means death where there's this I mean books that feel like so central to the show Mm. like the fact that Steed has like this huge library in his ship which is like in the first episode Badminton comments on how impractical it is to have that many books on a ship like fire yeah oh (laughs) (laughs) and then you know you have like all of the um, descriptions of the pirates which are kind of trying to create like an image of these pirates like there's the picture of Blackbeard and then Ed's like I don't need nine pistols I've got one and a sword like everybody else but it is kind of (laughs) creating that myth of a figure which again seen in Black Sails there's the same thing about written pamphlets as creating a history about pirates as kind of yeah, presenting them as particularly dangerous to the empire and then yeah there's also all the oral histories alongside all of those books and pamphlets 
such as like Black Pete telling the story of Blackbeard is creating this mythical figure. And so when we do have that scene of him describing this kind of mythical Blackbeard, that isn't the real one that we see later on. It's like this guy with this kind of obscured face with a Bristolian accent. Yeah. Um, interestingly. <laughs> Which I like. <laughs> this figure of mist, but he's from Bristol. But he's um, from Bristol. <laughs> I think it's yeah. kind of interesting how in A Flag Means Death, Blackbeard in Black Pete's description looks more like the painting in the book because the beard is sort of yeah. like it just sticks away and his hair sticks away from his face more. So it looks more like the fog and smoke filled fake one than he does in real life. It's kind of funny to me how Black Pete describing, again, more a fictionalized version that you see in the book rather than the real person, even though the real person is impressive on his own, but it just it just needs so much more theatricality to it. Otherwise, people just don't believe in it. I think it's also interesting in terms of written and oral histories because we think because of this Western idea, if you don't write it down, it doesn't count. Mm, yeah. It discredits a lot of oral histories as like, well, those are not reliable because they've never been saved in yeah. that way. And I think you see kind of like writing and I feel like I might be stealing this from somebody else's analysis of either black cells or something. So I'll, if I can find it, I'll link it in the show notes. Yeah. But like you can kind of see writing as being used and like, literacy is being used as like a tool of colonialism within the show as well yeah um and especially with the reason that they believe seed is a pirate at the end is because it's been written down and they believe the written word and so when lucius can like bring up this even though it's been kind of doctored this history of his piracy they then believe that as opposed to just people saying that he's a pirate it's the kind of written word that they can like take authority from and then you also have it with the act of grace contract um, and it's this very, there's this huge document and like Blackbeard signs with an X. And so it's unclear whether like Blackbeard, I don't know whether Blackbeard can read or not, but it's kind of clear that he probably can't write. They're kind of using this very long document and this tool of literacy as a colonial tool like, over these men. And so they can never read this document, basically, that they're sort of signing their lives away to. Yeah. It's mocking, it's mocking the fact that these people that are part of the colonial side have more faith in something that is written down no matter how fake it is but you also see with the pyramid scheme they give them pieces yeah. of paper that have cats drawn on them and yeah. they still think that that's like a valuable legal document because <laughs> neither olo nor franchi can read or write and so they just mm -hmm. he just draws cats on this piece of paper and they still respect it because yeah. they respect the piece of paper and the theatricality of it more than they do the reality of it, which is that you shouldn't just buy a third of a pyramid or half a pyramid from a random dude you don't know. That's <laughs> <laughs> such a good point. And yeah, I don't, and they kind of do the same thing with the like the diary as well. It's using that yeah. kind of, you know, they've got a faith in this, in the written word. So we're going to use this print culture to like exploit that and yeah, use yeah. it for their own game. Yeah. And then what does it mean that one of the final acts of the show is... Blackbeard returning and destroying all of Steed's library. That's oh, yeah. like a destruction of the written word and written representations of, I guess, piracy. It's kind of, it's almost a returning to that oral history and oral mm. myth-making and kind of like yeah. re-establishing, because he's kind of in that, he's trying to like create himself as a myth again, almost. Yes. And he and uses the image that, from the book. Kind of, yeah. 
Yeah, he yeah. uses the image from the book, but also destroys it. Yeah. <laughs> what it's does it really, mean? It's interesting because I feel like it's like the oral history and the written history are kind of working in tandem to an extent because it's like, in a way, it's like the oral history is supposed to be working for him as, you know, because in Black Sails, um, there's also this idea of legacy and you kind of want to be known as this incredible pirate because then it means that you don't have to do all the work. Like you can just sort of show your flag and then people will surrender immediately and pe- you have that mystique and legacy and it gives you a lot of power. And there's, yeah, there's a lot of power in that legacy. But in Our Flag Means Death, it's that same, when like Black Pete creates that image, we said it's the same image as the one from the book. So these two things are kind of showing to be sort of playing in tandem and it's sort of looking at kind of what that does to a person if they're just created as an image and like this kind of image of monstrosity that's sort of created around them, Um, which I think is interesting because it's, they're kind of doing the same thing even as they're doing quite different things. Yeah, because when Frenchies, when he tries to get rid of the book and fails, hilariously um he just he tries to say that it's all made up he says cannot stop imagining him steve bonnet in all different scenarios it's all totally made up it just mm. to me sounded so much like fan fiction yeah well, he calls <laughs> it fan fiction he calls it fan fiction yeah and it's so interesting because it's like they don't believe it they're like no the written word is truth and yes. like yeah except apart from what's his face the twin whose name i've forgotten the badminton, badminton. Twin. Yeah. yeah um but yeah like they're like finally no, they gave a british character a name i can remember <laughs> <laughs> yeah but they do believe it just because it's written down and even though the person who has the book is saying like no 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 this is completely it's just a grabby marketing hook which i thought was so funny <laughs> is that a pirate pun because a hook i'm getting ready for your joke at the end lucy i'm very i'm you you know, be building ready. up expectations now <laughs> when they show the plant at the end it's grown like it was quite like craggly and dry at the beginning when they stole it and then at the end it's green because they've melted it into yeah Yeah. it's been nurtured alongside with them and they're all growing together I feel like now's a good time to maybe transition into talking more about Blackbeard and I mean we've kind of been talking about that already actually you know what I was thinking of was the flag as well as a piece of media and print as well Oh, and yeah. kind of because I feel like the symbol of the flag is quite important in the show and it goes through different meanings and because the crew understand like Annie wrote down like the crew understand like the flag is like a very important piece of legacy within the show the branding the, the branding. branding the brand <laughs> the pirate brand yeah and I think it's interesting as well because when they take because uh, there's the cat flag that has all the the best the best one um (laughs) but when um steve kills badminton and like the they revolt against the crew the british navy crew they use that flag and they take it back to britain to like show to the king and to be like this is what's happened like this is the these are the pirates we're tracking down there's blood on it like look using it as like a way of you're like tracking them basically as proof yeah yeah as proof and it's sort of like it's the kind of danger of leaving that legacy as well what kind of the flip side of that is and that once you become recognizable and you have a name and a legacy then the consequences can also follow you as well and it becomes it, that signification is taken out of your hands and becomes like a way of branding you as a pirate and then forcing consequences on you which I thought was yeah. interesting mm-hmm. it's sort of more like the emotional truth of it which is that that flag means scary means death mm, rather than like yeah. the reality which I don't know that that person's gonna kill me also in like the openings to every episode is like oh yeah that's yeah. all things being carved in like that's all about written word on like oh pirate materials 
yeah I'm, I'm thinking of like the guy's like chest he's been carved yeah. in, but like there's so many other ones yeah. as well of like there's yeah. the um, children's toys children's toys yeah and that's the kind of like that steed's idea of playing a pirates thing and it becomes yeah. that and i think it's in episode nine when they actually have a flag that is a flag that has our flag means death on it for the title mm. interesting to track those and sort of see the progressions there but yeah it is very significant interesting my favorite one was the one where they carved it into sand because like then the wave came and sort of took it away and i remember watching that thinking one which crew member had to do like crew member <laughs> um had to do that for the show because that must have been a huge pain in the ass <laughs> because like you have to sort of time it perfectly so the waves like take it out oh, i reckon it was time. cgi i reckon think so? CGI. yeah because oh. it would have been t- i mean maybe maybe they went the extra mile and like carpet no, in the sand but like really really quick like before the wave the, comes in <laughs> i believe the performance silly i believed it <laughs> but i just so many like now crew members post images of doing the writing on like different versions of them oh. and like sh- posting all of it on instagram once they sort of realized i think that the fans just want to see all of it yeah I just assumed that someone was on a beach during that. Yeah. <laughs> because like at some point it's also carved into a boat, isn't it? Maybe they did, they probably, maybe they did put it into sand, but then they CGI'd the wave maybe, potentially. That makes more sense because, yeah, that, yeah. Uh, now that I'm thinking about it, it seems quite <laughs> ridiculous. What I wanted to say, sorry, was the idea that putting it into sand sort of makes it a reality and a fact for a second. But then because, again, with the books, you can destroy all this. Mm. Like writing as much as it's a a physical something existing, Mm. you can still destroy it. Ed throws out the books. You can just burn a piece of paper. It just, yeah. And then I guess that's also like so many pirate histories are, they are kind of lost in the sand they're kind of washed away because you don't have those like (laughs) stable documents that have been preserved they kind of it's like a an an unstable history because we value written documents over everything like as a as a culture Mm -hmm. and if you don't have those and they're transitory Mm. then they um kind of leave yeah and it's also like who gets to write the documents who gets to write the history about these people Mm -hmm. you get those narratives about these people like if they can't read or write then they can't write them themselves and so like once you lose those oral narratives I mean like within the show the oral narratives are also about these people but then yeah you lose the authority to kind of write about yourself and to tell your own story as well at Um, one point the title card is written into a skull at what point it's written into the moon (laughs) oh yeah oh I want to talk about the moon later because I'm like interesting symbolism there I just got so mad in the pilot episode when the British soldiers was holding up the different flags that they sewn that they had sewn and were like doesn't this look ridiculous and every single one of them I was like that looks dope you're just disrespectful like (laughs) yeah I would love to have every single one of these on my wall like they're like also the the one where the skull was vomiting another skull and the buttons (laughs) the buttons yeah the buttons are great you just have no taste (laughs) no and the cat one is just yeah it's just so good and they put up all the flags they put up all the flags so there is a one fixed signification of that flag there's like so many different there isn't one fixed pirate flag in the same way there isn't like one way to be a pirate though there are like it's like kind of the antithesis of with Black Cells then where massive spoiler alert for the end of Black Cells. Calico Jack in that series creates the Jolly Roger like symbol. Or like in the last frame oh, you yeah. see the like a skull and crossbones type thing. Or it might be skull and cutlasses, I'm not sure. But like it's the kind of like iconic pirate yeah. flag. 
But oh my God, I just didn't put this together. But the reason why you have the kids' toys as the title card is because that's the kids' understanding of yeah pirates. Because to them, it's a game. It's something they yeah. play with their dad. Oh yeah, and it's the, again, it's the like idea of like children and pirates, and the, yeah, which is yeah, still yeah. what we have now as well. As yeah, what, yeah, yeah. Ah, yeah. Yeah. So I guess maybe those title cards can be read as like different people's perceptions of pirates. Like it's all about yeah. kind of so some people see it as something in the sand that's being washed away children see it as this some people see it as putting it into like carving words into people's bodies yeah just like kind of brutality yeah each episode kind of gives you a different lens on piracy and like what it means and sort of also a kind of progression on sort of like our understanding of piracy throughout the show and the character's understanding yeah and it introduces you in the pilot episode as the black flag that just has a right our flag means death written on it which is like our most basic understanding of like pirates flex just like black sail a black flag and then just like white is that in the symbols. first episode or is that's that the in... pilot yeah oh because i thought it was in the ninth episode or maybe it i goes thought back the same the i thought the same i think because it's the most um if you scroll down you can see it. i think yeah. it's because it's the most basic because it's in front of the beach and the sea i think it's just the most basic thing and then they go into different versions of it and then they come back to it by that point. Yeah. It's like your perception it's the of it same. has changed. It's the same one. It's the same one in the ninth but episode. It, but it's become different because yeah. so much has happened yeah. in between. Yeah. And, what, and what's it in the last episode? I can't remember. It's on a mirror. <gasps> yeah. Oh my oh, God. Because it's about it identity. Really... <laughs> oh wait, no. So, so, sorry, sorry. That's not a mirror. That's a painting oh. of like... Oh. <laughs> Oh, sorry, that's well, still. still life. Still, yeah, like, that's... I thought it was a mirror for a second. I'm sorry, but it's red on. It's still like a, a quite sort of it's the flare. Paint. Yeah. Okay. It looks, but it's like a still life of fruits and vegetables and stuff. So that's still like imagery. Oh, but are yeah. there any leaks in that fruit bowl? <laughs> sorry. <laughs> <laughs> trying to make this joke work. Um... <laughs> oh, that's interesting. Um, would have preferred if it would have been a mirror that would have been so much cooler uh, yeah guys you could have <laughs> <laughs> i keep yeah. forgetting the name of the seagull but what's the um, call call the one where i said it was on the on a boat it is on a boat and uh, carl is sitting on the edge Aww. yeah call <laughs> my favorite crew member I might just briefly talk about theatricality now because I found that very exciting because I feel like again with the whole like image and like performance of piracy I think episode five is kind of where that becomes it's the most prevalent theme or like it's when it becomes most prevalent um and that's the see the episode where they do the art of fuckery theater of fear <laughs> and like it's that episode um and I was just like because there's so many Hamlet references in that episode yeah. and I only kind of got that on the second view I was like oh yeah like this is just entirely Hamlet but it's great <laughs> um, <laughs> I just saw him holding up the skull and I was like I got that reference yeah <laughs> <laughs> and again and again we can have like pre-read text of like Shakespeare yeah, totally. as well oh um, yeah all that stuff happening <laughs> interesting because it, it's also interesting because it's like Izzy quotes like Shakespeare a couple of times and I think also because it's the idea of Shakespeare as being, um, it's sort of like seen as this very like highbrow literature, but also at the time it was most people like watched, or like not most people, but like if you were in London, you'd watch Shakespeare. Not to, like to be like it's universal, but a lot of, you know, you'd sort of get your kind of very cheap ticket and stand in the pits and you'd watch your Shakespeare. Um, Lucy, you probably know more about this than I do at this point, because you've written quite a lot about Hamlet and things. But yeah, Izzy sort of quotes twice as well. He's like, so here's the rub and a pox on all of really? you. Really? 
Um, yeah. Holy yeah. shit, that's amazing. Sorry, I, just, so I, I wonder, did not pick up on that. <laughs> so I wonder whether that's he watched a performance of Hamlet maybe at some point, or like whether Ooh. that's just like showrunner, like the writers just like popping it in there for fun. Yeah. Yeah. And it's also the idea of it's like Steve's like, okay, I want to do psychological horror and literary, whereas the crew are like, well, I saw someone being stabbed this one time and that was quite scary. And it's their lived experience versus his kind of idea of kind of literary horror. And you've got a lot of people kind of standing behind curtains, which again is very Shakespearean, like when Izzy's talking to Steve and when Ed's like watching the last kind of scene of it and he's like behind the curtains. Yeah. And it's like the kind, well, of, like, that's the kind of a lot of those dramas as people being behind curtains because they yeah. like hide at the back of the stage and then get stabbed or listen in or yeah. those, that is, yeah, all about performance. Also making fun of this idea of the way that people are who make theatre because steed is in like black turtleneck just yeah. self-important director none of you are taking this seriously <laughs> <laughs> yeah and it's like the, it's like such a big theater mood as well it's like kind of either it's like you spend like ages trying to do something and just like nothing happens or you get it done yeah, in like 20 yeah. minutes it's like I, <laughs> it's like with the kraken reenactment as well that's like the kind of hamlet play within a play and sort of like when it's in hamlet when hamlet's trying to find out whether claudius has killed his father he kind of has this play be put on where it's someone like dribbling poison in someone's ear is supposed to like show Claudius has this massive reaction to it and it's like it, he's guilty and it's the same thing kind of happens with the Kraken at the end when Ed watches it's that kind of memory of him killing his father and so you have that and then it's really sad because like in the end like they're not very scared of the fake Kraken but they're scared when Blackbeard comes out from behind the curtain because he's the Kraken <laughs> I mean so they sad. are scared of Jim they're all scared of Jim like oh yeah the sausages <laughs> yeah <laughs> the shadow theater as well that kind of it's also like a kid's aspect of it of just you're not even seeing anything you're just reacting to a shadow behind a curtain <laughs> yeah with some sausages being like pulled out of someone's yeah. stomach but it is it is odd that it's kind of like it's the performativity that tries to reveal the like truth almost it mm. is because that's what happens in hamlet it's the classic the plays the thing wherein we'll catch the conscience, the conscience of, the, of king. the king and it's we're finding the truth of the matter through performance and through fake mm. words we will find the true words and yeah. yeah you do have that same idea of theatricality and that kind of does suggest that there is even though there's performativity, it suggests that there is like some sort of essential self that is found through performativity. Mm. Like kind of what seems to be suggested because by them actually being afraid of Ed at the end as opposed to the image of the Kraken. Yeah. That is kind of still trying to present some sort of truth behind the performativity. But then it's... Ed is the image of Blackbeard so again it's like another like image and another performance that is then being revealed through this other so it's just like many layers of performance and he comes out from behind a curtain as well which is very yeah yeah, like the truth is revealed but then it's like (laughs) and then but then it's interesting because he's crying in that moment but they don't see sort of his fear they just see him as a symbol of fear and it's like the myth rather than the man that they see and then he like crawls into another room I will say they're also scared of Lucius yeah so Oh yeah, scared of Lucius because that's not performativity. No, that's just. And again, it's like mixing, yeah. But it's like the mixing of the true and the non-true, and and everyone thinks like, "How did he do that? Like, wow, what a what a trick!" And it's no, he did it literally just chop his own finger off. But it's kind of like difficulty of um, appearance and reality, and sort of like performance and truth, all those things mixing together in a very confusing way. It's sort of quite difficult to pick them apart. 
Also, we John dressed up as a cat, and it's again, it's the cats being terrified. So and I'm much. like, is this? Yeah, I love like it so it, much. Is this Just a reaction? Meow. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm a witch, and here is my. <laughs> and it's also like, is this a reaction to like cats, like the film as well, or like the musical? I just I'm kept like, thinking very... this is better than the entire <laughs> movie was. Oh my god! Yeah. yeah. We've mentioned this before, but we watched um, Cats the movie on Halloween last year or year before oh, last. No. And because yeah, yeah, we were like, last. oh, it'll be really scary, but like not like a real scary movie because we can't deal with those. And it was just very strange. And I'm, I'm not <laughs> I mean, sure. It I was traumatizing. It. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I would like run off that boat in a heartbeat <laughs> if that started happening. I also just thought it was interesting because watching the first episode, I, again, I didn't pick up on this the first time I watched it. It's so important that they want to not maybe kill Steed because he's quite good at performing yes! stories yeah. for them because Lucius can read, but he doesn't do the voices as yes, well. do the own voice. Do the own voice. <laughs> and it's like Pinocchio as well. It's like the story of like wanting to be like a real boy and sort of like oh, coming yeah. into your own. And again, truth and rea- like kind of like becoming real rather than fate. So I had to love when he goes me me legs or sticks <laughs> <laughs> wait how old is that story we're in 1717 like jesus uh-huh. that's that must be a really old fucking story then i didn't know that pinocchio was that old <laughs> but performing it is so important it's not just the mm. written word because lucius could feed it to them but they want it performed <laughs> yeah and it's again the mixture of the oral and the written and them kind of like coming together Lucy, do we want to move on Hello. to the genre of eccentricism? Eccentricism. On the word eccentric. Yeah. So after watching Our Flag Means Death, I was like, this really, it does really resonate with black cells. It really makes me think of it. But what is it that makes these two texts kind of work together? Because this was, I went on Tumblr for like the first time in years to be like, what are people saying about these two shows specifically interacting with each other yeah and like there seemed to be a first wave of people who are like now that this show is trending everyone go watch black sales like it's really great it was really underrated at the time um and so a lot of people said that and then there was a second wave of people saying this is a really weird recommendation to give based on this show which is like really cozy and uplifting and really wholesome and you're recommending like this gritty pirate drama. This doesn't make sense. They're like, apart from like the fact that both have canonically queer pirates, there's like nothing, there's no relation. And I was like, that doesn't feel true to me. Yeah. But yeah, there was this kind of idea that it was basically inappropriate to recommend Black Sails to people who liked the show because they were like, no, this is cozy and comforting. It's not like dark and violent. And so I think the thing that, really resonates between the two is this idea of eccentricity both are eccentric shows and I'm going to explain that more in a bit but I would like to say that I did get this from one of my module conveners from last year who is writing a book about British post-war comedies and the genre of eccentrism so that's Ooh. Benedict Morrison and I should credit Benedict, idea. <laughs> Benedict I've heard so much about him he's amazing so yeah, so we do kind of associate eccentricity with comedy and there is like, there is a very specific where we're like, 
this feels particularly British and eccentric. And we have the like idea of a person who we would call like a harmless British eccentric, mm-hmm. who I think seems kind of like the steed figure. Like people are like, oh, he was like a, like an eccentric pirate from the this time. I think maybe like in Black Sails, you could say that, oh my God, what's he called? Thomas? Yeah. yeah. yeah, yeah. He... he <laughs> No, I, I'm brain. laughing. I'm laughing because Another I also Tom. asked Lily like a couple of days <laughs> yeah. ago. What was the guy called that he was fucking? They're all, they're all called Thomas. They're, they're all, all called, called Thomas. If in doubt, it's Thomas. Thomas. <laughs> it's Thomas. <laughs> but that's like also like an eccentric figure. And eccentric has its connotations of being whimsical and cozy and fun, but generally harmless. And actually, that's how many people are describing our flag means death. It's like whimsical, cozy, sweet, eccentric bit odd but like wholesome yeah wholesome yeah yeah. but eccentric is actually not being harmless it actually has this kind of really political meaning if you break it down it's literally outside of the center it's not centric it's eccentric it's decentered it's outside of the center Ooh. it's like quite literally existing out of normative structures is what being Ooh. eccentric is hmm. and I am now unfortunately going to do a Derrida quote so, um, <laughs> oh <God. laughs> so it's a bit of a mouthful and I'm going to try and explain it afterwards but when he describes what the idea of the centre he says quote the function of the centre is not only to orient balance and organise the structure mm-hmm. but above all to make sure that the organizing principle of the structure would limit what we might call the play of the structure. So essentially the center is what keeps the structure in place. Uh If you're thinking about a classroom, the center of the structure is the teacher. It's kind it's like of the nucleus within. of the cell, not the, the nucleus oh, of the cell, uh, not the nucleus, no, no, not the nucleus of like an atom. It's like the nucleus of the atom or whatever. And it's like the, the, the oh, I can't remember my physics at all, but like the bit in the middle and then it kind of, then the things gravitate around it. Yeah. Like a solar system. That's easier. Like I understand how to talk system. about a solar system. Yeah. Okay. Gravitational pull. Yeah. Yes. So being in the center is being within like the normative structures. Okay. Being eccentric is basically destabilizing a destabilizing of structures it's being allowed to play outside of normative structures okay which is essentially by definition what piracy is it's saying we're not going by the like society we're literally not on the land where this these structures are taking place Mm -hmm. we're kind of outside of that so Ooh. pirate life is by definition eccentric. It is out of the centre. Yeah. So both these shows are eccentric. Their protagonists are eccentric figures, both in the like, you could say Flint is eccentric because he's eccentric to both pirate life and to... Oh, um, that's true. Out in society, British life. So I think that's why they kind of resonate with each other. Like Our Flag Means Death is that kind of cosy, sweet fun, but also eccentric it's kind of outside of kind of what you expect from both comedy and pirate shows and its characters are also eccentric so yeah this is my thesis this is super interesting (laughs) because the eccentricity is also plays into the campness of it yeah whether you go along with this idea that it is eccentric or whether you 
just sort of go like, no, this feels too much out of the structure and therefore I just don't want to sort of follow along with the story. So I think it is essentially this kind of working outside of these, both these shows are about characters that aren't working within or are actively working against the normative structures Mm -hmm. of non-pirate society. So kind of outside of the family, outside of, I don't know, the normal ways to earn capital outside of, yeah. Yeah, it fits into like the queerness of the show, which we're going to like talk about very, very soon as well. Yeah, I put up Steed next to talk about. Um, I feel Mm -hmm. this is like, I'm just like reevaluating everything that I've ever known. Um, wow. Yeah, so I'm inter- interested in like if you think of Steed as an eccentric figure, as in outside of the center, mm. not necessarily as like the kind of he he is the harmless eccentric. Yeah. yeah. I think that, I mean, I was going to talk about this as part of the closing thoughts, but I think this just fits too well into your value very well mm-hmm. eloquently established thing of eccentricity. When I started watching the show, I sort of felt like, oh, no, I don't, I'm not going to like this. Because there is this idea of the eccentric, eccentric, especially white dude who is bad at doing things in comedy, in YouTube videos of just men like being shit at baking, being shit at cleaning, being shit at babysitting, being shit at stuff. And this idea of weaponizing competence that is sort of sold through the comedy of eccentricity because it's, you know, like he tries to bake a cake or something and then like flowers everywhere or whatever. And you're just like, oh, this is so funny because it's so over the top and it's meant to look eccentric and that's supposed to make you laugh. And I was just, I don't enjoy watching men be shit at basic things when everyone around them just has to work hard. It just, I get the comedy aspect of it. I get where the joke is supposed to land. I just don't find it funny. And it took me like two episodes to like get into the show because I thought this is not funny to me. I get it, white rich dude has a pirate crew. I just thought this is not going to be fun for me. And that's not what the show ends up being about, but that's kind of the eccentricity. The idea of eccentricity is also meant to be, I think you said it like harmless, right? But it isn't because you're supposed to laugh at someone's being outside of the center, whether that's supposed to be because that makes it makes that person less vulnerable to criticism, which would be good, especially when we talk about queerness, that we don't laugh at someone or we or like laughing at someone makes us less likely to punish that person because we don't take it as seriously, which is still discriminatory, but it creates less danger for that person. When I was starting to watch the show, I just thought, oh, God, no, I'm just I don't want to watch like episodes upon episodes of a white dude being bad, at, like a rich dude, no less just being bad at a job that people had to do because they couldn't exist in other spaces. And then again was something that was being subverted for me here because I was like, oh, it's not about the eccentricity of him being ridiculous. That's such a small part of this whole thing. And I feel like that's maybe also maybe what invited a lot of bros and dudes into the show. One of the reasons why I don't think you see him as queer is because he seems so over the top and British that sort of camouflages a lot of the queerness. In terms Mm. of gender performance, sorry, I'm like jumping the gun, but in terms of eccentricity, that's one of the reasons why it almost turned me away from the show quite early on. And then sort of realized that that's, again, something that sort of did quite intentional here. And it's not the, it's not the basic joke that I hate so much of like, look at him sort of failing. Isn't that funny? Because I find incompetence in men, especially weaponized, whether that's intentional or unintentional, really, really, really not funny. (laughs) Yeah. 
yeah, I wanted to briefly um, kind of talk about piracy and queerness and connection within that genre. This idea of like the freedom of the seas, the kind of homosocial environment of pirate vessels. You've got like historical figures such as Anne Bonny, and there's a really good bad gays episode on Anne Bonny and sort of like talking about her as like this kind of historical, like potentially queer figure. But like there's again, not very much historical record on her and what is written about her is written from like a colonial lens it's very interesting i'd recommend reading about that yeah. um and going to look at that episode and you've got kind of like kind of cross-dressing and possible trans readings of people such as like mary reed also like these ideas about like kind of gay marriage on pirate vessels and all these kind of different kinds of freedoms that you get again like linking back to eccentricity and kind of like living outside the rule of law and these freedoms that you get on pirate ships and so piracy's kind of become this queer genre in a way i mean what uh, what lily was talking about in terms of like gay marriage and stuff like that or like queerness on ships is that, that there were like contracts type of contracts established so you could because it was quite like a lot of ships just didn't have any women on them so this you could sort of like leave your money and your like what you owned to another man on the ship things like that so there were sort of kind of types of uh, yeah queer things established within piracy and again when we talk about piracy we also need to be aware of the fact that we're never talking just about one set of structures or culture because obviously because we're talking about the high seas we're talking about very very diverse group of people everywhere on earth so like piracy wasn't just established in one part of the earth and when we talk about the golden age of piracy we're talking about like an 80 year span of time mm within like a certain part of the earth and i mean the show specifically we're talking about like around barbados but that's a good point there's this sort of idea that like pirates had gay marriage but it sort of like wasn't in the bad gays episode they explained that like that wasn't kind of quite the idea around it but at the same time there is still like quite a lot of like potential around piracy is like this very subversive space like not just in terms of like gender and sexuality but also in terms of like class and racial hierarchies although like not entirely of course but like there's sort of like more potential of like kind of creating alternative structures and like kind of different things like within this space. Um, but again, that's kind of what shows like this is kind of drawing from is this sort of like historical potential and then like yeah. building it into like something slightly different. Um, there's this idea that queerness is like the antithesis of masculinity. And it's interesting because in a lot of these macho spaces where women are just not present, a lot of men, not just in pirate ships, but also like in armies and stuff a lot of men's realize um i might be interested in other men i just thought it was so funny because um sorry i just was watching like that clip from um black sales again and when he talks about um when flint talks about how they sort of create these monsters and dragons in the shadows and it's just such a beautiful description i think of queerness in like again eccentricity living outside of the norm outside of the structure that you're forced into the dark because he says in the dark there's discovery there's possibility there's freedom in the dark once someone has illuminated it and i don't know that just so connects to me steed and ed sort of realizing that they love each other because even within their own structure outside of the center there's still even more possibilities to be found and that just i don't know i just i think that's beautiful <laughs> yeah <laughs> i want to yeah. talk about that with the moon later as well yes. but i'm oh, not gonna sorry. bring it in just yet no no oh no, my no. God. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, there's, there's so much. I was just like, I just got a bit obsessed with the symbol of the moon, like on my rewatch. I was like, hang on. <laughs> but yeah, we won't jump ahead. We'll, we'll leave that for like a little bit. 
piracy is a really good genre to use for queerness because it's like the freedom of the seas and you have these queer environments just for the lack of a certain gender being present that's a weird way of phrasing that but um <laughs> i just thought because it was i was looking through like all the different songs that were used for the show and also the the soundtrack that was made was really good it's made by the same composer who also composed the score for sims 2 so <laughs> I, <laughs> Highly oh my recommend. God. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so good. In the Cat Stevens song, the lyrics, some of the lyrics are, <clears throat> I have my freedom. I can make my own rules. Oh, yes, the ones that I choose. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I just I just think that's so beautiful. <laughs> I think it's really funny because it's like the soundtrack's great, but it is very much like kind of boomer dad music. That was yeah, like, totally. <laughs> like, and here's the chain by. Uh... <laughs> that, the Mac. chain was 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 also in Black Sails. Wait, what? Was? no, wait, what? What? Actually, I don't know if it was. How there was, was one in... song that was in both Black Sails and our flag means death. So I'm like, was... that's so funny. How, how did I not notice that? Black Sails. Excuse me. No, but like it is so boomer because like when Leonard Cohen started playing, I remember thinking like, oh, of course it is. I love Leonard Cohen, but because of my dad. Yeah. <laughs> uh, oh, but Lou Reed, nice. Yeah. Yeah. No, perfect the day chain? was the most exciting part. I'm I'm looking it up yeah. now. I I can't. I just like a black sales train. And it was like, do you want sales on a train? No. <laughs> wow. When would it play? I can't remember. So I'm trying to think because I'm like mostly Black Cells didn't do the thing that Our Flag Means Death does, which is where it kind of like is a show set like a period show, but sort of doesn't like doesn't take itself too up. seriously. Yeah. yeah, it's like we'll do this kind of loosely. We'll take it loosely. Whereas like Black Cells was more kind of like we're in the shop. We are in this time period, and we're not going to sort of like fuck around and dress people mm. in Crocs or whatever. Is it um, possible that they did the thing that Bridgerton does where they played like an acoustic version of this? Oh, song, potentially, maybe? yeah. Like that the song itself wasn't really played in the background. It's like, the- thank you next, whilst people dance around a. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> maybe we'll look this up after, Lucy. We'll, we'll, yeah. we'll I'm, yeah. I'm distressed and I can't find it. It's fine. We'll, we'll it's move so on. It's so annoying we'll when you're like, it. no, but I'm right. I'm right. I'm right. I just I'm can't right, find it right now. <laughs> we'll put a pin in that for now and we'll, yeah. Okay. Yeah. We will. So in terms of queerness in media, one of the things that was quite compliment on the show is that they didn't queer bait, even though everyone expected them to be queer baiting with the show. And I just wanted to define queer baiting for a second, because I do think it's sometimes used in a way where I'm like, I think you mean queer coded. It just doesn't necessarily always mean the thing that people, I think, want it to mean. So queerbaiting specifically is a marketing technique. So uh, this is from Wikipedia. Fiction and <laughs> entertainment. And so the idea is that a creator or show writer uh, or showrunners or writers hint at queerness specifically without ever wanting to actually show you any sort of same-sex romance or LGBT representation in any way, shape or form. So the idea is that they sort of make jokes about things, they sort of hint at the idea that these people have had a queer past or something like that, and or that they might be interested sexually in a different character, but it's always the way that it's being played in terms of queerbaiting, it's like, it can always be read as a joke to straight Mm. audiences. It's always like subtext and it's like you have to be looking for Mm. it, that kind of thing. Yeah, totally. And in this show, you just don't have that because... 
So it's always needs to be queer baiting. The reason queer baiting exists and it's so atrocious is because it gives studies a way to sort of say to conservative audiences, like, no, 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 we don't let the queers exist in our show. And it also gives queer people, because we're so used because of the Hayes code and stuff like that, we're so used to having to read subtext. We just always are waiting for that kind of stuff. And so when we see it happening, we're just like, oh my God, is that going to be queerness on the show? And that creates fan art and creates interest online on Tumblr <laughs> and <laughs> then people just get essentially like free marketing for their own mm -hmm. and this is what the show didn't do and we one of the texts we read for this episode was Act of Grace by Gittleman which we're going to link it's a very good article on mm. our flagman's death and I'm just going to quote them for a second the subtext is text and it is not sanitized it is not dismissive it takes up space because we don't have to look for a subtext so the subtext is Chekhov's gun in a way they pick it up later like every yeah. look when you rewatch the show every look every smile every glance it gets picked up within this one season and you don't have to wait for it they don't promise it to you later on like i remember there was an interview with the showrunner of what was the show called with the, supernatural no the <laughs> the marvel one with the shield guy uh, um captain something and winter soldier <laughs> captain something <laughs> i didn't watch Is that it falcon and the winter soldier falcon, that one. thank you i'm sorry <laughs> i haven't seen it yeah he said something on the show where he said he was on dating apps and there were a lot of tiger pictures which a lot of fans then interpreted as which makes sense they were like well men post with tigers on dating apps that makes no sense because women don't do that so this must be like a hint for this character to mean that he is canonically now queer and then the showrunner was interviewed about this and at the time because they don't air like in one chunk they air weekly he said oh you have to keep watching and of course there was nothing done about that because either like sometimes either a queer writer just put that in to like fuck with them i don't know or they did this intentionally or they just didn't think about it and this was just a mistake they made because they were like isn't it funny how on dating apps men post with like people post with tigers or whatever and then didn't think about the consequences of what that would mean for the because obviously if you're not interested in dudes like you don't see men's pictures on dating apps yeah but it's like that kind of shit just this show doesn't do that is my point <laughs> our flagman's death doesn't do that yeah i think i read something else and i can't remember where i read it now but i'll try and find it to link it where they were talking about how you kind of have the main central romance but then you also kind of have all these kind of queer romances around it like the whole space is sort of like yeah the whole culture and like the environment that's very queer as well yeah. not just like the central romance which is also really nice and sort of like mm. it just the well, whole vibe I must say because like going into it I knew that there were going to be like some queer relationships but the fact that there were ones around meant I think you could still not be sure if you yeah. were being queer baited with yeah. the baby. Yes, 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 yeah. yes, yes, yes. <laughs> you were like, okay. <laughs> so you still had that like, is this happening? Is or, yeah, or that was like my, everyone yeah. else. <laughs> it was yeah. just all of us, this all of us just loose is watching the two of them talk about the fishing shop in the uh, the gift yeah. shop thing, which is like, this is happening. Is this happening? <laughs> yeah. This is happening. <laughs> <laughs> I have a long spreadsheet of just gay movies that I've been watching for like half a year now. And a lot of them are short films because queer media doesn't get made a lot, but also a lot of them are really bad. Just in terms of sometimes it's the quality, sometimes it's the writing, sometimes it's just weird stereotypes that's just come up in tropes that I hate and everything. And I just 
was thinking about this as a white straight cis showrunner. Why did he make such a good queer show? And I was just thinking about what they don't do. And so, so they don't center only white thin cis people in every plot and storyline. So you have Ed, they made uh, Blackbeard indigenous, which I think other than racist assholes on the internet, no one gave a shit about, but it also just enriches the storyline because it connects again to racist ideas of monstrosity, of violence, of that kind of stuff with the way that Izzy talks to Blackbeard and like demanding him to sort of go back to his old ways. You have uh, Jim, you have Olu, you have Black Pete, you have Wee John, like everyone on the show just isn't at the same time thin, white and cis or even male. I just looked up Gus Khan's character's uh, name because I couldn't remember. But like Yvonne, you don't just only center people in their 20s or early 30s, which is an overall issue that I have with rom-coms. You have Ed, Steed, and Izzy. They're all aged up quite a bit because Ed died at 35 to 40 because we don't know how old he was. Steed died when he was 30. Izzy died, I think, at like 23. So a lot of these characters are just aged up quite a bit. And again, it enriches the story. It doesn't it make does, it yeah. weirder. It just yeah. makes it better because you're like, because you, oh, you explore different things. It's like yes, you get a yes. different like angle on like a rom com or on like yeah. Yeah, it makes yeah. it better because of the television my parents watch. I watched a lot of crime shows growing up, and so if gay people showed up in those, it's because they were murdered or because they murdered someone or because they were related to someone who was murdered. And if queer people like showed up and survived the television episode, it was always realizing that they were gay was about the fact that they broke up a family. They had to tell their wife and their kids and then their wife and their kids were like, you're going to leave us. You broke up this family. Queerness is not seen as the, the problem isn't heteros and normativity that is being blamed, but it's you're ruining this family structure. Mm. And it's actually the fact that you're queer makes everything worse. And it doesn't do that here either. And it also doesn't, you don't really have the moment where it's like, we should have met earlier, we should have had more time together. It's the fact that they have now lived through a certain amount of time that they get to be maybe retired together and the fact that they're older, it's not a sad story. Like when he says, I'm folding stuff and it's okay. <laughs> <laughs> you know, those, those movies where like old men are sort of like, let's do everything on our bucket list before we kick the bucket or whatever. And you're like, I hate those movies because I feel like they're so condescending to, to like older people. Well, this is almost over. <laughs> like it doesn't do that here. At all. I mean, they're also not old enough for that. But like, again, pirates just don't age like they don't uh, so they don't age they don't become that old <laughs> technically for the most part and yeah. that's that's also how yeah. they sort of start ed and steed sit together and he says like i'm a shit pirate and then etsy says to him like most pirates i know are dead you're not doing yeah. badly actually all of these stories are sort of just at the beginning like ed and seed olo and jim Lucius and black pete whatever kind of couple they are that this is just starting so the idea of like making queer characters evil is quite common. You have that a lot with, again, the difference between queer painting and queer coding, like Ursula and the Little Mermaid, for example, she's like quite evil, but she's not like queer baiting. She's just queer coded. She's based on a drag queen. Like this is not mm -hmm. also, I would argue that they no longer make interesting. Disney doesn't make as good of like evil people anymore since they don't queer code them anymore. So maybe, <laughs> maybe queer people are just more interesting. <laughs> <laughs> But sort of the reaction of like, hey, please don't just make queer characters evil. The response on this show, I feel like, is just make so many queer characters where like the evil bit doesn't bother you as much. Easy is quite, he feels quite internalized homophobia to me. 
but it doesn't matter to me because there's so many queer characters on this episode. The internalized homophobia still has a place to exist, I think, in queer stories because it's important because a lot of us experience that. But you can't just make one the character, the only character that's gay, have internalized homophobia. That's really fucking offensive. And also, I don't even remember the title of it, but Netflix put out uh, Christmas, a gay Christmas movie last year that was essentially just a heteronormative story with like two gay guys. And it was boring as hell. And it just didn't feel queer. It just felt like in terms, it didn't work for me as a rom-com and it didn't work for me as a queer story. It just sort of made no sense because we don't fit into heteronormativity. That's kind of the point. I just love the fact that they just explored all of these different things without when they react to criticism on Twitter, when people write movies or television shows, I think they tend to overcorrect. So when they hear don't make queer characters only villains, they just strip queer characters of all nuance and interesting aspects. They don't understand that the issue with queerness isn't queerness, but it's heteronormative structures. And to just put queer people into the same straight structures, it's just not the same thing. And it just doesn't allow people to be interesting characters. And then those movies suck and then people don't want to watch them. And it's not surprising to me because, well, <laughs> it's not an interesting movie. Why would you watch it? I think uh, they use a lot of tropes in the show that feel to me like a teenage story, which makes sense to me because a lot of these characters are living through like a second just sort of coming of age story. And so all those tropes work in the story because they're queer and it wouldn't work if they were heterosexual because why would you discover falling in love at that age? Mm. in like a straight scenario they respond to bad tropes but they don't ignore why those tropes exist either mm. and it's not necessarily just always just hearing a bad trope and then just not using it but actually investigating why those tropes are a thing yeah. and then like playing with it and like putting it into a really interesting story and that's why Definitely. Every time you watch it, you just discover a different aspect of it, which is a beautiful like thing for you as a queer person to just see. And it also is something for you to explore. It just isn't, it also doesn't do the thing of, the show doesn't hit you over the head with preaching to you that queer people are humans. It just sort of gives you a really good story and a really queer story. Sorry, the point that I was trying to make is like, they usually put queer people in straight stories. Mm. This is an actual queer story narrative. Yeah, and it's like I think the kind of like pirate pirate um kind of environment helps with that as well. Yeah, for all the reasons we've talked about. Be gay, do crimes. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and I've also seen people talk about how like this show uses kind of like tropes that would normally be queer baity tropes, but then it follows through with them and sort of like it kind of uses the set kind of like romance tropes and tropes of sort of like yeah like kind of monstrosity or that then sort of like works with them in interesting ways and not in like shit ways and then like follows through and sort of does better stuff with them that wasn't a very coherent point I'm sorry <laughs> but no yeah. I just thought it was interesting I was like what like where does the term trope come from and it comes mm. from Greek and it's meant to like turn you a certain way give you direction in a way because you would think that like tropes would be something that people just overall do not like because why would you want a story where you sort of already know where it's going but I do think that a lot of these tropes exist because we like certain tropes, especially in romance yeah. novels. They're so mm -hmm. common. And you just, in the show, you have like the almost kiss between Jim and Olu, which is so cute because it gets interrupted by uh, Steed and his treasure map. <laughs> <laughs> you have like things that you can sort of discover later on, like Jim's favorite color, which because Olu asks, like, I don't even know anything about you. I don't even know what your favorite color is. And then Jim says, teal. And if you watch the show, Olu's like earring is teal. 
and so there's like this things are like sprinkled throughout the show tropes exist but they need to make a story interesting they need to inspire interest in you to keep watching it without being too predictable yeah Yeah. I think it's like tropes often it's sort of like oh things tropey it's sort of seen as like tropes are inherently bad but they're not like necessarily bad it's just like how they're used exactly Um, yeah. yeah yeah And I just thought it was really interesting how much tropes are supported in the show. So you have the camp gay character, Lucius, but it's not uninteresting because the character is not uninteresting. Like I said, you have the internalized homophobia with Izzy. You have the gay abandoning his family by coming out, but it's actually good because Mary's happy he's gone. Um, (laughs) (laughs) And also it's like not about like him being rejected either. It's sort of like, it's like an acceptance that he then leaves. He leaves because he's accepted and then it's like no longer a running away, but a running towards, which is sort of like yeah. his kind of arc. Yeah. Of like when he leaves for the second time as well. Mm-hmm. Also, like, I think that they actually now love each other in a way, like Mary and Steed yeah. in a way that they didn't before at all, because it just wasn't possible for them. Ed being excited to leave with Steed is quite a common queer story. Like Villanelle suggests to Eve to run away to Alaska. That show did not end well. Um, Guillermo in What We Do in the Shadows wants to travel the world with Nandor and actually almost gets to. Um, Sue suggests it to Emily in the show Dickinson to like for them to like run away. Um, and again, it's again, it links to that eccentricity thing you were talking about. It's like this thing mm-hmm. of like, we cannot live in the center. Let's like get out. Yeah. <laughs> Let's get out. And of that this. like, it never goes well. That was the moment <laughs> in the show when he was like, do you want to go to China? I was like, oh no. Yeah. Yeah. You have the best uh, within tropes. You have like the best friend of the rom-com lead, which is Lucius in the show, I would say. But again, it's doing, it's like done almost like a wink to the audience in a way that doesn't bother me. It sort of enriches the story. Like him bringing back like the stuff in a box. But like, yeah. where did this box come from? <laughs> <laughs> he sees Ed and Steed falling for each other before they do. He helps Steed seeing that it's over. <laughs> So I just love that scene where he like takes down like the the looking glass and then he just puts his hands up <laughs> to his eye. <laughs> yeah, sorry, but um, you have the jealous best friend who's sort of being left out in Izzy again. That feels very like teenager to me. Like, why do you hang out so much with this other guy? Like, don't you already have a best friend type of thing? <laughs> um, like it feels quite bitchy. Also, the way the way that Steed and Izzy talk at each other is just so bitchy the entire so show. It's like, oh, you again? <laughs> yeah. They break up because they both think they don't deserve each other. I feel like they both sort of have this, like when Steed goes back to the, when when Ed is left, he sort of essentially, he says, neither one of us will like you any less, which is just such a <laughs> thing of like, mommy and daddy are divorcing, but we still love you. Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah, Calico, um, Jack, when he sort of angers Ed, um, Ed screams, fuck you, Jack, he's my friend, which I also thought was like a subverting of, the th- of not of trope, sorry, but like of queer baiting, because in like a normal show, it would be like, in a normal show, in a straight show, it would be like, see, he said friend, he's not in love in this show. No, the friendship is their basis for their love. And that's, yeah, I think better. that's such a good point as well. Yeah. Yeah. You have the found family trope with the pirate crew. You have Steed and Ed spending the night together because they're stuck together when they like end up on the. The crow's top. nest. Yes. And when yeah. they like, yeah. have breakfast together. After the lighthouse. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah. After the lighthouse. Yeah. That's it. Um, maybe it's not the destination, but the journey trope because they um like steed buying the treasure map to like create a fun day for ed (laughs) 
but it's more like less about what they end up finding, which is the petrified orange, but it's about the fact that they got to spend the day together. Olo gets to like meet Jim's family and gets to know them way better. And just, yeah, yeah. Lucia's realizing that Em and Seed are really into each other. Yeah, yeah such a good episode. Yeah. Yeah. You have Olu and Jim and they were roommates, which I thought was really funny, like, (laughs) because it's such a joke among queer people that, like, people will just not accept that people who lived together and loved each other and had kids and pets and, like, shared lives or whatever, they're like, no, 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 they were roommates. (laughs) And Olu and Jim actually were roommates. (laughs) I just think it's interesting that the show uses so many tropes. When Lucius talks to Ed and it's like, you don't understand this because you're cool and you wear leather. It's again this idea of a YA rom-com of like a book. I just I can just see this book after someone like falling in love with like the guy wearing sorry wearing leather and just from like the wrong side of the tracks or whatever. <laughs> and like in the show, it's a pirate. Yeah, and it feels so impractical to be wearing leather as well. And like that's gonna be too. Oh hot. my god! Like, yeah. how do you get it on in the morning? You need some like talc powder by your bed. <laughs> like, I think that's also why like um, Ed likes the soap so much because he's just gotta be like, just smell disgusting all the time because he's wearing <laughs> this leather in a really hot environment. And so it's like, oh, yeah. the yummy lavender soap. I want to talk a little bit about the moon. So again, it's this kind of romance trope. Um, But also if we're thinking about freedom in the dark and illumination of the dark, it's also that kind of like, it's the opposite of the sun. Um, And I also watched a keynote speech yesterday and someone was talking about the moon. And I was like, oh, this is really helpful. I'm going to talk about this tomorrow. (laughs) Um, And they were talking about how um, the light of the moon is different from the light of the sun. It's sort of got like different connotations of like kind of desire and affection, soul, the night, imagination, illumination. And it's like not just the dark, it's not so it's not just darkness, it's like there is like illumination within that darkness, but it's like a kind of different kind of illumination. And I thought that was interesting because in when I'd remembered the Black Souls quote about like freedom in the dark, I just remembered like that in darkness there is possibility. But I'd forgotten the part where you talked about how like there is illumination, like someone just has to illuminate it. Or can you remember the quote? I can't quite remember it now. In the dark, there's discovery, there is possibility, there's freedom in the dark once someone has illuminated it. There we go. There's like, freedom well, in the dark once someone has illuminated it. That's the quote. It's the moon. And and so you kind of have this sort of symbol that's sort of like romance, supernatural, madness in quotation marks, cyclicality and patterns, and therefore change and progression as much as things stay the same, things change. Um, and also kind of like this idea of like the moon is something, because it's something that shows up like throughout the show, like the kind of full moon, like kind of shows up in a number of episodes. And it's like this idea as well, I think of timekeeping and sort of like, you know, like you travel by the stars and like you, in order to like kind of, follow the passing of time like the moon would be like quite a big feature I think because it's like you're on a ship so like that's kind of a way of like keeping track of like how long you've been out at sea and it also kind of tracks Ed and Steve's relationship I think so we have on like September 1st there's supposed to be a full moon um but he gets the date wrong and it or it's supposed to be September 2nd but it's September 1st he gets the date wrong and so they have to create the lighthouse instead and it's like kind of illumination in the dark um and then on actual September 2nd that's the romantic full moon after the party I did not put oh. that together. Yeah. Um, and then we have another full moon on the Kraken night, which is another key moment in their relationship where they have like a kind of emotional moment. Um, and again, it's the supernatural. You kind of got this sort of like the weirdness and these kind of like ghostly things and revenge and trauma, which I'm hopefully going to talk about later. And it's kind of like past coming back. And again, the moon like past coming back to um, like haunt people. Um, I think the breakup is also under the moon as well. I think it's a full moon. 
when Calico Jack kills Carl and then um, Edward leaves. I'm pretty sure that, I need to double check, but I'm pretty sure that's also a full moon. Again, another key point in their relationship. And then, uh, and it's like, a, and then after that, they kind of realize, like, that's when they realize how much they mean to each other. And then, but then when they kiss and when they're supposed to run away together, the sky is cloudy, there is no moon and there is no steed. Oh. And that's a kind of like end moment. And it's like the pattern is broken because the, the sky is cloudy and there's no full moon. <laughs> and that is my uh, reading of Afterlife Means Death and the moon symbolism. <laughs> Thank you. Any questions? Uh, <laughs> but yeah oh, the moon it just went and then when you said like that the title sequence is also on the moon and is that for the um which episode is that do you know that is number um, i'm definitely not scrolling down to count <laughs> um six six <laughs> i don't remember which one was the sixth episode six i'm just very quickly gonna look up I will say because uh, Lucia said this and I've said this, the moon was one of those things when I rewatched the show. I was, so there was a scene where they both went to a party and they came back and they were standing there in the moonlight, which is metaphorically used for so much romance and stuff. And still I sat there watching this going like, this is happening. Like <laughs> they were looking at each other like doughy eyed and everything. And there was a fucking full moon above them just illuminating their romance and I was still like this is happening and I knew how the show was going to end too and still because I'm so used to so much queer baiting I just did not expect or just not even just queer baiting but just like no queerness happening ever I just was still watch like when I rewatched it I was like of course this is how the romance is like begins you're watching a scene under full moonlight what did you think was gonna happen yeah <laughs> it's when they stab each other I think it's the, uh, it is the party one, isn't it? It is the party one. The art one. of fuckery. Is it? Wait, no, it's the... The six is oh, the right. art of fuckery. Oh, sorry. I'm, I was looking at it's it on... It's called the art of fuckery. That's there we what go. I <laughs> Ah, so it's the um, Kraken one. Okay, that makes sense. Again, the supernatural... It's the one where Izzy also challenges Steed to a duel and loses it because Izzy um, like, stabs Steed in like, the side the way that Blackbeard taught him. And then he gets like stuck to the pole. Yeah. Masked. so sadly that was not the one with like the full moon starts uh, the one where they went to the party was the fifth one that was a different title card that would have fit better though <laughs> gonna write into the show actually you should have <laughs> yeah, this around we wanted a mirror for the last one uh, <laughs> yeah. and also, they're kind of messed up with like four and five and six maybe swap those two around uh or maybe they're just like even more clever than we are and it's beyond mortal comprehension and yeah it's, yeah it's usually my first interpretation of anything when i don't understand something even if it's stupid i'm like i probably just didn't understand it let's talk about lighthouse the lighthouse again was something that it was planted so well in the show in the beginning when you know they're told at the wedding you're supposed to be lighthouses for each other and then Mary painting this beautiful painting in an art style that probably wasn't even invented yet at the time <laughs> <laughs> for her husband and him just not getting it and then he still took it on the ship though with him I know yeah mm. And then him telling Ed that he was meant to be a lighthouse for his family and he failed at it. And then both realizing that a lighthouse is going to be what saves them by pretending to be a lighthouse. Yeah, and it's like lighthouses aren't actually, they're not so much guides as they, you have to stay away from a lighthouse. Yeah. Well. So like the original metaphor of be lighthouses for each other doesn't work. 
Yeah. Oh, said, it's like, it's like stay away, away from each other. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which is kind of what ends up happening. And then like, this is a big thing because obviously Ed keeps the picture of the lighthouse. Like it's still up. That's like the only thing that's left in the ship. And the first thought is like, oh, maybe it's like a kind of a final remnant of Steed, but also it says stay away because lighthouses mm. are like, so it's both like a memory yeah. and something that's close, but it's also like a, yeah, stay away, be lighthouses for each other as in yes. tell each other. And the reason he's sitting there crying is because he got close to the fucking lighthouse. Yeah. Oh. <sighs> Like, yeah. I had just assumed that the show was going to end with Steed coming back to the ship. Ed sitting where Steed was watching him and just crying so much because Ed is still in there. It's not just Blackbeard. Ed is still yeah. in there. And yeah. he's just so heartbroken because Teach. Edward Teach, like, born on, born on a beach. beach and then, like, Edward Teach abandoned on a beach. I was like... <laughs> <laughs> was, was, was real life Blackbeard born on a beach? It's a very important question. And if I so, no was which beach? Which beach? Western Superman. Oh, my God. <laughs> Sorry. So not... But it's a beach that's, that's sort a of fun nearby. Bristol-based joke, fun right there. <laughs> Sorry, I laughed because you were literally naming like an actual beach, and it was like it's like, and it's well known for being a kind of well, it's it's just like a kind of like slightly rundown sort of seaside town, and it's got like it's a very muddy beach. You go there, and it's just mainly like mud and sand, and then you sort of you're like, it's usually I don't know. I feel like the, it's always it's always low tide, and it's like the sea is always like a billion miles away, and you can never quite yeah. get there. Yeah, I looked it up. I have no idea. <laughs> Taika Waititi and Reese Darby. I keep wanting to pronounce his name Rice. I know that's not how it's Rice. Rice. Sorry. But like, they improvise yeah. quite a lot of that fish and tackle shop and gift shop thing. Yeah. And they were kind of shocked that it made it into the show because it's quite a long part of them just talking. Yeah. It's still the but, most realistic. You're like, yeah, these are just two people who get on being like, oh, just bantering. <laughs> I was like, yeah, if any part of this show is improvised, it's that scene and it works really well. Yeah. <laughs> but I just wonder whether Taika Waititi does also maybe just improvise Edward Teach, born on a beach. <laughs> because there's so many aspects of the show where people just say, like, my nose is where I just, I don't know, I could never make that funny. But it's one of my favorite lines. Or just when Steed goes, in the ear hole. <laughs> where else were you gonna stab someone with a skew <laughs> like yeah. it's actually quite smart um <laughs> yeah i just wonder whether that was just improvised because i just looked i mean wikipedia i have no idea but it doesn't say anything about him being born on a beach also just fits into the pirate lore of he was always meant to be out at sea Hi everyone, that's the end of part one. We really hope you enjoyed it. Keep your spy glasses trained on the horizon for part two, which we'll be releasing very soon. But in the meantime, we'll leave you, as always, with a joke. Take it away. Lily, what do you call a pirate who steals from the rich and gives it to the poor? I don't know, Anna. What do you call a pirate who steals from the rich and gives to the poor? Robin Hook. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you.